0: A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.
1: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose three of our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and on the podcast this week... As schools in Ukraine start to reopen, will they be safe? Svitlana Morinets takes us through the changes to the syllabus and the difficult decision parents are having to take over whether to send their children back to school. Then, Cindy Yu on why she would be the perfect communist shill, before John Connolly tells us why cow attacks are no laughing matter. First up... Svetlana Marnets.
2: For the first time since Russia's invasion, schools in Ukraine are starting to reopen. For many parents, including my own, this presents a dilemma. Is it safe for pupils to return? My brother is seven and has spent the past year doing remote learning, which is hard enough in countries at peace, let alone those fighting an invasion. A return to school would be good for his education, but then again, might there be the danger of Russian airstrikes? Parents at my brother's school have been asked to vote on whether they would prefer pupils to continue with online learning or return, with all the risks involved. It is estimated that at least 3,000 of Ukraine's 12,800 schools will reopen their doors. Many do not have proper bomb shelters, which are a necessity for a country digging in for a long war. Given that air warnings sometimes last for hours, pupils need desks and toilets underground if they are to carry on studying. Most schools have had to fit bomb shelters at their own expense and in some cases parents have been asked to chip in with the funding. The curriculum has also been overhauled. Ukraine believes it is fighting for its soul as well as its borders, and the education of children is seen as a major line of defense. As a result, children are to be given military and medical training during their new Defense of the Fatherland classes. Pupils will learn about repression and resistance, as well as the handling of explosive and unfamiliar objects. All history, geography and literature lessons have been updated. The history curriculum now includes new historiographic developments with a special module on the history of the invasion. Geography will focus on the countries involved in the war, those who helped Ukraine, but also those who supported Vladimir Putin. Ukrainian pupils will be told who their friends are and aren't. Russian and Belarusian writers have been removed from the core curriculum and replaced with Western writers, including Joseph Roth and Robert Burns. A pantheon of new Ukrainian heroes who have emerged since the February invasion will also appear. Legal studies will include more terms from international humanitarian law, relevant for a country that sees war crime prosecution as a line of defense. One module will focus on the concept of Russkiy Mir, Putin's idea of the Russian world in which he believes Ukraine belongs, which lay behind the invasion. Russism, Russian Nazism and Russification, attempts to replace Ukrainian culture with Russian, will feature too. Both sides see education as a battlefield. Sergei Kravtsov, Russia's education minister, has announced that in the occupied regions of Ukraine, classes will be decided according to Russian standards. This is best for Ukrainians, he says, because Russian school education is one of the best in the world. The lessons in these regions would be as they were under the Soviet Union, using the Russian language and Moscow's curriculum. In many ways, the Kremlin is reverting to old methods. In Melitopol, an occupied city in the Zaporizhia region, Ukrainian parents have even been told that their children could be taken away from them if they do not go to school. But Ivan Fedorov, the city's exiled mayor, has said he has absolutely no idea how Russians would make good on such a threat. And with so many teachers having fled these regions, it remains to be seen who will take these classes. Ukrainian teachers living under occupation have been threatened with long prison sentences if they do not show up to teach. But working for the Russians is seen as high treason by the Ukrainian government and there are no exemptions for teachers as yet. So if teachers do show up to schools in occupied territories, they can technically be jailed for collaboration. To reinforce its own position, Russia has sent in more than 200 teachers to these regions. They are paid a daily fee of 7000 rubles, which is roughly seven times what they would earn at home in Russia. Some will be Russian nationalists seeking to do patriotic work in Ukraine, as one history teacher from the remote Siberian town of Omsk put it. There can be no division into Russians and Ukrainians because we are one Russian people and there is no Ukrainian and Belarusian languages. There are two dialects of the Russian language. Russian teachers are also being lured to Ukraine with the promise of free property. In the Zaporizhia region, my wife and I may receive a plot of land, said Yuri Baranov, another history teacher who was quoted in the Russian press. My wife wants her own garden at our new home. Daya Ganieva, an English teacher who moved to Crimea from Russia, is quoted as saying that she too is hoping to receive a property. Even if Ukraine regains control, she assures readers, people will not be left abandoned. In extreme cases, we will be evacuated or somehow supported. It is highly likely that if they are given houses, these will have once belonged. The Ukrainians who have been killed or are exiled. Against this backdrop, Ukrainian pupils are trying to continue their education. My brother was born in 2014 and has only ever known a Ukraine at war in one way or another. He has not spent much time in school thanks to Covid and Putin, but packed classrooms would be an obvious target for the Kremlin. Parents like mine must ask themselves a difficult question whether a regime that has already attacked Ukrainian hospitals and nurseries would stop at schools.
1: That was Fitlana Moranets. Next, Cindy Yu.
0: Could I be the model communist show? Consider these facts. I was born and raised in China. I speak and read Chinese. Some question my English accent almost suspiciously posh given that I didn't speak a word of the language until the age of 10. Before the pandemic, I visited China regularly. My podcast, Chinese Whispers, often explains the Chinese government's way of looking at things. I studied at Oxford and now work at the heart of the British establishment. Am I not ideally placed to advance Beijing's agenda? When I started my career, this was all a joke. Now it's less of one. The atmosphere in Britain towards China has soured. Over the past seven years, the government has gone from David Cameron's kowtowing to Beijing to Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss jostling to outhawk each other. Some of our political class are now applying a new test. Will you condemn China at every turn? If not, you're probably an apologist. There seem to be only two categories, hawk or shum, with no shades in between. The S-word is thrown around with alarming frequency. It doesn't matter whether you're actually working for the Chinese Communist Party. The point is, you may as well be. As Oxford's RAN emitter, perhaps Britain's foremost academic expert on China, puts it, we've gone from complacency to panic without the intervening stage of knowledge. I don't deny that China poses a real challenge. In fact, on this I'm probably aligned with Steve Bannon, who said that the West should be more concerned about Beijing than Moscow. The CCP does plant shells. MI5 is right to warn about politicians taking dirty money from individuals linked to the United Front, which works to capture foreign elites and overseas Chinese. We also need to be clear-eyed about the lobbying efforts from major Chinese companies such as Huawei and question the role played by CCP-funded organisations such as Confucius Institutes. But that makes it even more important to understand China properly, which is different from empathising or excusing – We need to know the answer to questions such as, how does the Chinese government work? Who are the major influencers within the CCP? What do the Chinese really think? Yet some of us trying to answer those questions, rather than just campaigning against the CCP's evils, fail the ideological purity test. Take the Great Britain China Centre, an arm's length body of the Foreign Office founded in 1974 which supports liberal minds in China to push through legal reform. It has also been crucial in helping British politicians and civil servants learn about China. It regularly hosts experts to explain, for instance, what Beijing is doing in Xinjiang, or how Chinese propaganda works. Officials from the Chinese government are sometimes guests, offering rare opportunities for politicians to speak to and challenge their elusive CCP counterparts. But as was revealed in June by The Spectator's Steerpike columnist, the Great Britain China Centre may have to close because Liz Trust has refused to renew its funding in one of her final acts as foreign secretary. The official reason given is budget cuts. It's true that it never quite made sense to finance this Belgravia think tank from the overseas aid budget, but it's only asking for £500,000 and some other pot of money could have been found. Those close to Trust tell me the real reason is that she sees it as a quote, China show organisation. It is too cosy with Beijing, says Team Trust, pointing to the meetings with CCP officials as evidence. Here, again, is the insidious S-word. Calling someone a shill means you don't need to engage with their arguments. No matter that the centre has always been funded and directed by the Foreign Office, as well as other governments in the Five Eyes group and corporate sponsors such as HSBC. All that its director, Moretta borger MacLeod, spent a decade in Beijing running a Swedish NGO specialising in human rights. She left at a time when foreign charities were increasingly targeted by Xi Jinping's regime. She is more capable than most of pointing out China's transgressions. Anyone who writes about China is used to a little name-calling. I don't usually mind it. I think it good banter to joke with people I know about how I've just received the day's orders from the embassy. They don't really think I'm a spy. Or at least, I don't think they do. But it's no longer funny when real China experts are pushed out and their impartiality questioned just because what they say doesn't fit with a certain worldview. In the Cold War, Whitehall was filled with spies and Russia experts. It was recognised that it was important for Britain to understand the USSR. People such as Alan Bennett and Michael Frayn were taught Russian during their military service. Know thy enemy is surely one of the fundamental maxims of international relations. Yet, at this critical moment, Britain simply doesn't understand China. Last year, The Spectator revealed that there are just 41 diplomats in the Foreign Office who speak fluent Mandarin. A recent study found that in the UK, there are only 300 graduates of Chinese language each year, a number that hasn't risen since 1999. Who would train in China studies if there were no jobs at the other end of it? If China is Britain's number one threat, as Sunak puts it, then we should be doubling, even tripling, the funding for organisations like the Great Britain China Centre. Even Tom Tugendhat, who has been sanctioned by the CCP, has written to the FCDO to protest the centre's closure. John Gerson, who was Margaret Thatcher's advisor on China, told me his theory of the Tiger Woods trap. When you fall asleep at the wheel and wake up to find traffic coming head-on, a massive overcorrection will land you into the nearest tree. Gerson doesn't think Westminster is there yet, but I'm afraid I see some serious swerving. I just hope there's still time to steer back.
1: That was Cindy Yu,
3: and finally, John Connolly. One of the worst things about being attacked by a cow is that no one takes it very seriously afterwards. My partner Claire and I found that out the hard way after a walk in Devon. We were making our way through a large field on a public footpath, heading towards a herd of cows milling around a stile. Most were ignoring us, but one seemed different larger and more malevolent than the others. It began to stare intensely at us, and as we carried on, it started to walk slowly in our direction. Hoping it might be a curious cow rather than an aggressive one, we branched out to the left to give it a wider berth. But the cow then broke out into a full-on run. At this point we froze, thinking it might slow down if we didn't spook it. Only when it was almost on top of us, showing no sign of stopping, did I crack and scream, run. The cow ground to a halt, momentarily shocked at the sound of my voice, but then reared up on its hind legs like a stallion and leapt after me as I sprinted away. I had no idea how close it was, but Claire said afterwards that the cow had its head down as it charged after me and was only a foot or so away from my back. She was terrified I was going to be trampled in front of her eyes. In the end, we were lucky. As we went round a corner, it stopped chasing and we were able to scramble through a hedge to escape. Afterwards, we felt extremely fortunate not to have been seriously hurt, but if we were hoping for sympathy after being charged by an animal, which weighs around 500 kilos, about the same as a polar bear, we didn't find it. My mum, who grew up on a dairy farm, seemed bemused. Most people either blamed us for the attack. Were you really on a footpath? You must have provoked it, or simply didn't believe us. Others looked at us expectantly, as if waiting for the punchline of a joke. Cows are a menace though, like it or not. Last week, 20 of them surrounded and headbutted a woman in Lancashire, and left her with 15 broken ribs, a punctured lung, and a shattered ankle. The victim had to drag herself to the nearest drystone wall and haul herself over before Mountain Rescue arrived. In the aftermath of the attack, a grassroots campaign group called Killer Cows has been given a new lease of life. It was set up by a trio of walkers after two were seriously injured in separate cow attacks. One, a farmer's daughter, escaped with several broken ribs and has to be pulled from the field, unconscious by her husband. The other was left with a lacerated liver. The campaign now collects cow attack stories from walkers, and publishes the most serious online, with titles like Maxine's Story, Rammed by a Cow. Dr Ruth Livingston, a retired GP and one of the founders of the group, tells me that despite the seriousness of the attacks, it's quite common for cow victims to be met with incredulity, bad puns, why didn't you move out the way is a common joke, and blame. The number of people killed by cows may be small. The health and safety executive says that there are on average four or five fatalities in Britain every year, but that reached 11 between 2020 and last year. In comparison, around 10 people worldwide are killed by sharks each year, and we don't laugh about that. And, as Killer Cows points out, the cow attack figures don't include the many serious injuries and near-misses, neither of which are recorded by the HSE. At the moment, there's little protection for walkers. Farmers are advised to keep any animal which is aggressive away from the public and to take extra care during calving season, but it's not clear often this guidance is followed. In February, a farmer was given a 12-week suspended sentence after an 83-year-old man was attacked and killed by cows with calves on a public footpath. Killer cows want greater use of electric fences on popular paths near cattle, compulsory liability insurance for farmers and the creation of a cow attack database. Dr. Livingston hopes that a national reporting system will reveal patterns. There's a theory, for example, that continental breeds are more aggressive than British ones. It also seems that women are more likely to be seriously hurt by a cow, perhaps because they are typically smaller or can't run as fast. The database could also challenge some cow attack myths. It's commonly assumed, for example, that cows only really attack walkers with dogs. But Dr Livingston says that around half of the incidents reported to the group don't involve one, even if the most serious attacks do. Controversially, the campaign group also encourages walkers to sue if they are seriously hurt. Not to punish farmers, but to encourage them to take out insurance, be more responsible by separating aggressive livestock from public rights of way. At the moment, it feels unlikely that the kill a cow campaign will have much luck, in making public footpaths safe from aggressive cows. It has been some comfort, though, to find people who take cow attacks a little more seriously. And in the meantime, I've found my own personal brand of catharsis, enjoying a steak whenever I can.
1: That's everything for this week, but if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and please join us again next week.